This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is John Freilich, one of your hosts, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Alain Tremblay. Dr. Tremblay is a respirologist at the Foothills Medical Center and a professor at the Cumming School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. He's also the local site lead for the CATCO COVID-19 treatment trial, which is the Canadian arm of the WHO's Solidarity Trial. I'm really excited to have him on the show today to chat about a few things related to COVID-19, CATCO, and respirology. Dr. Tremblay, thanks a lot for being on the show. Well, John, thanks uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So, you know, CATCO is a really interesting study design. Uh, Can you let our listeners know what it means for the trial to have an adaptive design? Right. So, yes, absolutely. It's very interesting uh, trial design and and it's very well suited to the COVID situation where, you know, upfront we expected knowledge to be generated very quickly internationally. So, you know, if we follow the usual method of implement a clinical trial with a very specific question and a specific treatment, we knew that by the time, you know, the trial would get approved, there might already be a change in in what we know about the treatments for the disease and everything would have to start over. So it, it would be completely impractical to do it that way. So the adaptive design really is meant for the trial to be able to evolve over time, you know, in an adaptive way, according to what we learn both within the trial uh, itself and from other uh, trials going on internationally. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, because of course, there's been a lot of real-time information coming out. So that flexibility is really important. You know, just as kind of a general overview, um, what is the target study population? You know, the key inclusions and exclusions for CATCO? Right. So as another component of this, you know, when, when these trials are, many of these large international trials are being designed, you know, people were trying to be as pragmatic as possible. Again, in, in many clinical trials, you know, people are very specific about inclusion and exclusion criteria. And, and there's often criticism about many critical trials that they're not applicable to, you know, most people with the disease being considered that you've, you've selected such a small subset of people with disease X that, you know, it's not really applicable. So, you know, many of these trials are very broad with almost you know, with minimal inclusion exclusion criteria. So for CATCO, for example, um, essentially you need to be admitted to hospital with COVID. And, you know, uh, unless you're, you know, expected to die within 24 hours or be transferred to another hospital where the trial is not active, there was really no exclusion. The only extra one uh, which are being removed actually were pregnancy and people with severe uh, renal or hepatic dysfunction. But even those uh, restrictions are now being removed from uh, from the next iteration of the of the trial. That's great. Yeah, it just makes it so much more generalizable uh, once we finally know what the results show. And now, you know, the clinical outcome. What's kind of the key outcome of interest? Yeah. So, so again, very simple. It's basically status at discharge. So, are you alive at discharge, or did you die in hospital? And usually that's been measured at 30 days. So again, very simple, pragmatic. And, and at the international level, the outcomes report form is, is, a, is a simple one-page uh, case report form, you know, with, with not a whole lot of extra material. So it's meant for broad use um, in hospitals uh, and centers, perhaps, where they weren't used to doing a lot of complex clinical trials. So again, initially when this, these uh, trials were developed, we were expecting hundreds and hundreds of patients to be coming through the hospital. So they were designed as uh, as pragmatic as, and simple as possible with, with very simple but very hard in points of essentially mortality. 
That simplicity is so nice. What a great design. Um, there's a lot of COVID research going on right now. And, and I understand that even in the province of Alberta alone, there are tens, if not hundreds of trials going on. How do you try to recruit when there's sort of other competing studies at the, at the same time? Yeah, that's been a, a very complex situation to navigate. Again, initially, we're, we're thinking we would not have a shortage of patients to enroll. And very fortunately, of course, we've had very low hospitalization rates. So, but that being said, we can't have, you know, 20 trials if there's 10 admissions per month. Uh, it's just not going to work, particularly in treatment trials. And so, you know, I've, I think I've heard the same stat where in Alberta, there's 150 COVID trials, but, you know, the vast majority of those are not treatment trials. You know, some are observational and some are lab trials, some are mass trials, all, all kinds of other things that don't really conflict with, uh, with the CATCO. But for treatment trials, we, ha- we do have a handful of trials and it brings up all kinds of issues of coordinating these trials uh, between the investigators and also considering the, the possibilities of co-enrollment in multiple trials and the issues that brings up from a logistical scientific point of view and also from a, a patient point of view in terms of the burden that we're placing on them when we're approaching them with a lot of information. Sure. And and so maybe can you just let our listeners know, you know, what are the current treatment arms for CATCO and, and what have been some of the logistical considerations around adding and removing treatment arms given this adaptive design? Right. So when we started back in April or early May, when we got, got our approvals, there was officially four arms in CATCO, although one of them, the remdesivir, was not available in terms of drug supply. So technically we had three arms and there's always a standard of care arm. And then the other two arms were hydroxychloroquine and a drug called Calitra, which is a combination of uh, uh, lopinavir and ritonavir used in HIV. So those were the three treatment arms in practice that were uh, available when we started up. And then, you know, as things have evolved, you know, we've seen new evidence around uh, maybe not a lot of evidence to support things like hydroxychloroquine. And so um, has that now been dropped as a treatment arm or is it still one of the treatments? Right, that's right. So so both actually those arms, the Calitra and the hydroxychloroquines, uh, were dropped in uh, late June, early July. And that was based in part by external data, in particular with the hydroxychloroquine, but also with interim analysis of the CATCO data and WHO solidarity data, which really showed lack of efficacy for both those drugs in the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID. So again, you know, within, within a few months of starting the trial, we already had two very firm, unfortunately negative endpoints, uh, but that's of course valuable as well. As you know, many, many people uh, receive hydroxychloroquine as inpatient treatments internationally without much evidence. So proving that that actually does not work is, is actually quite, a, quite valuable. Yeah, that is very important negative information to find out. You know, kind of along those lines, the access to information for the general population has been very much in real time, getting it from mainstream media, social media. Um, Have you come across examples where, you know, patients aren't interested in being put on certain treatment options because they have, you know, maybe preconceived notions that they should be on drug X, be it hydroxychloroquine as an example because of what they've read about in the United States, for example. Um, Has that come up at all in the context of the trial or even in the context of your own clinical practice? Yeah, I, I think it has. I think, I think it's been more of a general uh, feeling that the, the potential participants have. For example, you know, I, we don't get the sense that it's a particular desire to be on a particular drug or not beyond. It's, it's a bit more of a, 
you know, perhaps a, a skepticism that they want to be on a trial, you know, on these investigational drugs. I think, you know, most people in the public that aren't necessarily medically savvy, when, when they hear all this conflicting information, I think, I mean, some people probably form a strong opinion one way or another, but I think most people are just disillusioned by the process. And I think that's where we've maybe failed by having all this information out there uh, and these open discussions on controversies is that many people don't form necessarily an opinion one way or another or convince one way or another. They just kind of, you know, get the sense, oh, these people don't seem to know what they're talking about or they don't know what they're going. So I think we lose some of that confidence from the general population. So we certainly have had patients that, you know, simply don't want to be part of a trial even though, you know, really they realize that there's no other active treatment options for their disease. But despite that, decide that they'd rather just not get anything at all rather than uh, be involved in a research trial. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. It's great in a lot of ways that access to information has become so open to everyone. But you're right. We almost need a bit of a filter before things become too public because medicine and research is complicated. And I think it's not to be expected that the general public will appreciate the complexities and the nuances of what it takes to truly know um, information and what is true. Right, right. No, absolutely. And just the different levels of evidence between different designs of clinical trials or retrospective trials and things like that. I mean, clearly this is not something that the general population has any sense of and most even journalists uh, reporting on these have. So, so it's very hard to uh, you know, put the genie back in the bottle if you want when you know, a, a small retrospective trial comes out as showing drug X is effective. You know, everyone else that says, well, hold on a sec, that doesn't mean it's effective, you know, or it's called a denier and all kinds of names and, and, you know, you get all kinds of theories as to why people are for a treatment or against a treatment. And hopefully most of us would just be for strong evidence, not for a, a specific treatment or not. And, you know, certainly when I, uh, you know, decided to take the lead on, on getting these trials up and running in Calgary was really because I, I saw that there was no evidence. I wanted treatment options available for as many people as possible, but in a form that would also generate knowledge so that, you know, again, a few months later, we would start to know what works and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to see that we are starting to see uh, that information come out from CAPCO, uh, Solidarity, and, and some of the other international trials, which is uh, really impressive. You know, I gave a journal club uh, for our group yesterday and, uh, you know, my last journal club was back at the end of January where I, where I reviewed a few papers on this new virus that was coming out. And then my next journal club, I'm reviewing, you know, multi-center randomized trials. So it's quite remarkable how rapidly we've been able to generate this knowledge. But it is critical that we continue to do so and hopefully incorporating effective trials into our standard of care arms of things like CATCO, which is what we're, we're essentially doing now. It is pretty incredible to see how quickly things have been able to be put together to design these very complex, nuanced trials to try to get information out as quickly as possible. Yeah, a lot of credit has to be given to the the research and the medical community for the efforts that have been put in. Um, you know, kind of along the lines of CATCO in general. So if we need to refer an eligible patient for potential enrollment, what is the easiest, best way to do that? Yeah, so for, for the Calgary hospitals, we, we have a pager, basically 01815. You know, if you search CATCO on the paging system, you'll see it. And any day of the week, we're around daytime. We, we, we can't enroll overnight or anything like that, but we're around daytime, so we can be paged anytime. We actually get a list from uh, Alberta Health Services every morning of any new COVID admissions in the region. So we, we would then reach out to the clinicians involved with those patients and, and say, you know, 
this trial is available. Can you ask your uh, patient if they're willing to be contacted? And then we'll contact the patient and, and take care of the, uh, of the process that way. So we're trying to make it as simple as possible. And we're also working with other investigators uh, to co-enroll patients so that we don't have multiple coordinators calling the same patients. And uh, already there's often challenges in interacting with these patients. You know, they're isolated. Uh, a lot of our patients have been from uh, communities and ethnic communities where, where contact is a bit more difficult or there's language barriers or they're older and hard of hearing and we have to do this by phone. So it's quite challenging already. So we're, we're coordinating. So there's only one coordinator uh, calling the patient and we can co-enroll them an example in the CAPCO study, but also uh, in the CONCOR-1 study, which is a plasma study uh, that's going on in Calgary as well. So we're really trying to streamline things for both uh, uh, potential uh, participants and for the healthcare teams that are managing these uh, patients. Yeah, that's terrific. You know, maybe uh, while we've got you here, um, just as a respirologist, there are a couple of kind of opinions I'd like to pick your brain about for some of the clinical aspects of other um, other aspects of COVID management, if you will. You know, one of the changes that we had seen early on was limiting access to certain investigations like PFTs or sleep studies and even some therapeutic modalities like CPAP or BiPAP uh, due to concerns about disease transmission risk to healthcare professionals. Uh, can you discuss some some of the considerations for these decisions and, you know, do you think, is there going to be a big backlog in the post-COVID era um, of getting some of those diagnostic tests done? Right, right. So this, this was probably one of the big challenges that we had as a, as a group is figuring out um, which of these treatments and tests could go on and which had to be curtailed and how could we do them safely. And, you know, really the principle is that a lot of these, you know, respiratory procedures to lump them all together, uh, you know, can be considered uh, aerosol generating procedures, so AGMPs. So we know that for the most part, COVID is transmitted with a droplet type uh, fashion, but you can generate aerosols in, in many ways, whether experimentally or with some of the medical procedures that we do. And that could be as simple as giving someone a, a nebulizer, you know, a nebulized Ventolin, for example, can start aerosolizing particles, which of course greatly increases the risk of transmission to healthcare providers and anyone that's in the environment of that patient. So each of these procedures and treatments had to be looked at very closely to decide, you know, in general at a high level, first, let's be quite strict on which participants or which patient need the diagnostic test or the procedure. So we have to be very strict. You know, of course, in medicine, there's always a scale of, of potential benefit for any intervention that we do. And some interventions have very high levels of evidence and can save lives. So we know, for example, BiPAP and hypercardiac respiratory failure uh, reduces uh, in-hospital mortality. So, you know, you don't want to st stop doing a treatment like that unless you have an extremely good reason. On the other hand, you know, doing pulmonary function test for monitoring of stable asthma, you know, perhaps has less benefit and can be just avoided altogether. So we basically had to look at all of these scenarios and come up with protocols that were as much as possible evidence-based, but also rationally based in terms of potential benefit and harm if, if they were avoided. Yeah, I can't imagine the undertaking that would have been as well. So, you know, do you think... Now that, I mean, who knows where we're really at? Are we approaching a second wave or not? But has there been kind of any relaxation of some of those policies and rules? Or are we still kind of um, keeping a lot of the restrictions that were in place? Yes, for sure. I think we've had a relaxation in most of these. So 
you know, a few examples, for example, we had patients coming into hospital and they were on chronic CPAP for their sleep apnea. You know, so in April and May, we were, you know, very strict in saying, absolutely not, you know, it's not life-threatening. You just don't do, you just don't do CPAP. Whereas now we've relaxed that if, if someone really is at extremely low risk of COVID and they're on, on CPAP and they're admitted for heart failure, well, you know, it, it's probably a good thing for them to continue the CPAP. Risk is extremely low given our community transmission. So we'll, we'll uh, approve that, for example. But we're still asking for them to give us a call so that we can kind of just have a quick review of the situation. So it's not a complete relaxation, but certainly we, we've relaxed. Bronchoscopy services, again, are mostly back to normal, even though our precautions are a bit more stringent and our screening a bit more stringent. Uh, we're, you know, back to normal operations. PFDs, again, uh, volumes are still reduced and we have a good screening uh, protocol and, of course, more safety protocols for our uh, respiratory therapists. So uh, it is slowing down activities in the lab. So capacity is down a little bit, but we're able to do PFDs if they're indicated. So, yeah, so for the most part, we're, we, we've kind of, I think, reached back a new normal for all of these things, which is, you know, a little bit more scrutiny, a little bit more in terms of screening and, and safety precautions. But for the most part, we're able to do the tests that need to get done. Great. You know, uh, kind of on a different note, I think we can all agree that wearing a mask is important to help reduce disease transmission. Uh, concerns have been raised by some members of the public that wearing masks for prolonged periods of time could cause, you know, hypoxia or hypercarbia. Uh, has this come up with any of your patients? And how can we help explain in, you know, simple terms to our patients that, in fact, wearing a mask is safe and it won't cause ill health effects? Right. So, I mean, there's certainly some issues around wearing masks, and, and I don't think we can dismiss them altogether. You know, I think there's probable benefit to having mask wearing in the community. I think, I think, you know, we don't necessarily need to get into all of that. You know, from a pure clinical trial point of view, the evidence isn't there that it's effective, but there's a lot of anecdotal or kind of epidemiological evidence that it might be effective. And, you know, in my view, it certainly brings attention and it reminds everyone that we're still in a pandemic. And I remember early on when, you know, only a few people were masks going out in public. If, if anything, it reminded you immediately, oh yeah, we need to be careful and socially distance and wash our hands and do all of the other things that we need to be doing. So in a way, the mask acts as a reminder to say, you know, this is not the way it used to be. In terms of tolerating the mask, you know, you're right. There's very little evidence that there's harm. I mean, there, that's called the minor thing. There's skin irritations, you know, some smells bad and people don't like it. People are uncomfortable with them. So all those things are real. And they're just the way you, you're, you're sensing the mask on your face. We're not used to wearing that, you know, unless you're in an occupation where you have to wear masks all the time uh, already. But, you know, I think we can all agree that there are relatively minor concerns and for the most part can be addressed with different mask models that fit better or that don't put as much pressure uh, on the back of your ears, for example. And people have come up with all kinds of, you know, innovative solutions to those uh, problems. But yeah, but physiologically, it's not that there's no impact on, on respiratory physiology, it's that it's all very mild. And there's been lots of studies over the years, mostly in normal people not in uh, disease uh, populations where, you know, we see very small amounts of increase in airway resistance, for example, wearing a mask. Some of the N95 type masks, you know, do have a little bit of a dead space, you know, because they're not tight fitting on your, you know, there's a, a volume, if you want, within the mask of, of dead space that can be about 100 mils, 150 mils. So there is an impact there, but it's relatively modest. And the non, you know, N95 masks, 
that are less tight fitting and don't have that pocket of air would be expected to have much uh, lower impacts on airway resistance in that space. You know, I think what the studies show though is that when you, when you put these masks on some people, there's a perception of discomfort and a perception of dyspnea that's been shown in some studies. So people do perceive that uh, as a hindrance to their breathing. I mean, uh, and, and again, it's, you know, perception, you can't really argue with perception. It's, it's, it is what it is, but you're right. You know, there's no evidence that your uh, oxygen saturation is going to go down or that your PCO2 is going to go up by more than one or two points, uh, you know, by wearing a mask, even, even at exercise for prolonged periods. Great. Well, you know, I think that was most of what I was hoping to chat with you about. So unless there was anything else that you wanted to bring up, I would just like to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And uh, we'll have some information on our website uh, about CatCo for people looking for more information as well. Great, great. That's great discussion. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.